Well, when I was younger, much like you probably, you wanted to know, I wanted to know the future. Like I, I wanted to know like what's going to happen? Who, who am I going to uh, marry? What, what job am I going to have? Where, where am I going to go to college? Where, where am I going to live? All of these different things. We, we want to know these things when we're younger. And so when I was younger, we had things like the magic eight ball. Anybody ever have a magic eight ball or use the magic eight ball? Okay. Yeah. You ask a question and then you kind of shake it right and you get your answer. And so I would ask the magic eight ball, will Darby ever like me more than a friend. Signs are pointing to no. Golly. So then I go and I get on my fortune cookie and I crack my fortune cookie and it's like, you're going to be a great friend. And I'm like, I'm tired. I don't want to be a friend, right? I, I'm tired of being the ground. I don't want to be in the friend zone with dark. Like I want her to like me. And so then I would play mash. Any of you guys play mash growing up, right? We got our eight ball. We got the fortune cookie. We play mash and, and you, you, you count and you draw the, the spiral circle, right? And then you go through your, your mansion or your apartment or your shack or your home and, and your job and who you're going to marry. You do all these things. We do all these things because we're interested, especially when we're younger, we're, we're interested in the future. And then it's like you get some time underneath your belt, you know, you, you experience all these things and you're like, man, I, I, I don't care. I don't, I'm not concerned about the future anymore. I've got enough to deal with like right now. Like I don't need the future. I don't need to know anything else that's going to happen in the future. Well, here's the thing. Here's what we're going to see this morning. Jesus made a lot of prophecies about the future that actually came true. And we're going to see some today that have been fulfilled already, already, and some of the prophecies of Jesus that are yet to be fulfilled. So if you got your Bible, turn with me to Luke chapter 21. Luke chapter 21. We are in a series where we're going through the gospel of Luke, verse by verse, chapter by chapter. And we've challenged you as our church family to study the gospel of Luke with us, right? To, to, to lean in, to engage. And so here's what I want to challenge you to do, especially today. Get out our app. It's called the City Church Lubbock. If you don't have it, uh, download it in your app store and then go to message notes and the verses and the points are there for you and you can fill in the blank as we go. That's a great way to engage and to stay connected in our time together, especially today because today, I don't know if you saw my Facebook post or my Instagram post or whatever, today is going to be hard. It's gonna be challenging, I'm gonna tell you right now. And if you're not engaged, it's gonna just go right over your head, okay? So you gotta lean in, you gotta be engaged because today, Today, like we always do this here, but like when I say, hey, today we're going to really study the Bible, when we do that every single week, today it's like times 100, okay? So you need to be ready, like, like lean in, engage, and, and, and follow along with me. We, we preach verse by verse here because we just believe that is more effective at producing disciples of Jesus. It's more effective at producing that remnant people of God that we talk about here often that will remain faithful to God and to his word and to his ways. And so preaching verse by verse, studying the scripture verse by verse is critical to you becoming a faithful disciple of Jesus that's going to remain faithful. And when we talk about remaining faithful, that's what we mean by a remnant, like a a remnant is a people of God who remain faithful to God despite the direction of culture, despite the direction of our society that's headed right now. We want to remain faithful. We want to be that remnant. And so we study the scripture verse by verse that we might equip a remnant people to remain faithful to God. So here's where we've been in the last weeks. Remember, 
right now, not like today in our time, but in the Gospel of Luke, we're studying Passion Week, right? We're looking at Holy Week. And so we started off with Palm Sunday. We said that should probably be called Donkey Sunday. Okay, if you were here, you know what I'm talking about, right? Then we looked at Monday where Jesus is flipping tables. Then we looked at Tuesday. We'll call it Authority Tuesday. Today, we're finishing up Holy Tuesday, where Jesus has already predicted he's headed to the cross, right? Over and over and over again. He's already predicted that. Now he's going to predict his return. He's going to predict his return. What Jesus is about to teach us is called the Olivet Discourse, because this is a teaching that took place in the olive garden, right in the garden of olives. Okay. So he's going to teach about his return as King and the judgment that is to come. And we, we read and we study this passage also in Matthew chapter 24, Mark chapter 13. And then today we're going to see it here in Luke chapter 21. Now, when you read or study predictive prophecy, specifically about eschatology. Eschatology is the study of last things, of the future, when Jesus returns and what that's gonna be like and what's gonna happen after Jesus returns. That's the study of eschatology. And so when you study eschatology, when you're looking at biblical prophecy, here's what you have to keep in mind, a mountain range, a mountain range. Think about it. For those of us, especially in West Texas, You drive to Colorado, and what do you see? You see the mountains, right? You see the Rocky Mountains in the distance. And you see it from a distance in 2D, which means this. You see mountain peaks, and you can tell there's multiple mountain peaks, but you can't tell the distance between one mountain peak and another mountain peak until you get closer. Does that make sense? So it's the same thing when you're studying biblical prophecy. You're looking at it to a degree in 2D, And as you get closer and as you begin to experience some of the things that we read about in predictive prophecy about last things, you get a little bit closer and you begin to see, oh, there's some distance here that I didn't see before, which is what got the nation of Israel in trouble when they were looking at the predictive prophecies about the Messiah. It appeared when you read through the Old Testament that there was one coming of Jesus, there was one coming of the Messiah. And it's only when Jesus comes and he begins to help us interpret the Old Testament and interpret the Old Covenant that we begin to see, no, there's actually in the Old Testament, we can now see it. No, there's two comings of Jesus. He comes once as the suffering servant and he's going to come again as this conquering king to judge the nations. There's, there's, a, there's a gap there in the mountains. Does that make sense? And so that's where we have to remember, even today, when we look at these predictive prophecies. We're looking at mountains from a distance. And so here's what it requires anytime you're studying biblical prophecy. It requires bifocals. Bifocals. When, when you have bifocals, you can see far away, and then there's a part on the glasses, right, where you can see close up. And, and that's what it takes when you're studying predictive prophecy. You have to have bifocals where you begin to see, hey, some of what we're seeing here is about the here and now or in Jesus's day and time here in the first century. And then some of it's going to apply to later. And then some of it's going to apply to both. And so it takes some bifocals to study predictive 
prophecy, specifically eschatology. So we're going to see some today. We're going to see some prophecy that will be fulfilled sooner than later, like in the first century. We're going to see some prophecy that will be ultimately and finally fulfilled later when Jesus returns. And we're going to see both, some that's about sooner and later. And then we're going to see that there's a, a pattern here. There's a typology here that I believe repeats not only in the first century, but even before that, like in 600 BC, first century, and then again when Jesus returns. There's a typology here, there's a pattern here that repeats. And so you're gonna see some of my filter through which I read and study eschatology or the doctrine of future things today. That, that I, I see a typology here, a pattern that repeats, you're gonna see that here in just a second, but then you're also going to see my filter by which I read and interpret these things is called historic premillennialism. Now, some of you are like, what is that? Okay, we don't have time to dive into all of that right now, but let me give you the short version. That historic premillennialism is that Jesus returns after a seven-year tribulation, and when he returns, he will then set up a thousand-year kingdom here on this earth. So that's what's called historic premillennialism, that Jesus returns after a tribu tribulation that's here on earth that will be a time of terrible suffering. After that, sets up his kingdom, thousand-year reign here on earth. Now, not everybody in this room agrees with me there. I, I totally get that. I, I totally understand that. And so here's what we believe when it comes to eschatology, when we study the, the doctrine of future things, right? That, that we should have, as the body of Christ, unity, but when it comes to the studying what we're talking about today, we will not have uniformity. There's just, there's no question about it. These things are too difficult to understand. They're not extremely clear. And so people have interpreted them in different ways ways with views like amillennialism, postmillennialism, and then even pre-tribulational pre-millennialism, okay? So there's all kinds of different views. We don't have time to dive into each one of those. I set them up for you in case you're interested and you want to study more, but I'm giving you a heads up because some of you that know what I'm talking about, you understand what we're talking about today, you're gonna see my filter come through and I'm just giving you a heads up that my filter is what's called historic or classical pre-millennialism. So unity, but not uniformity because the imagery here that's used and the difficulty of this passage, theologians have been divided on how we understand Jesus's words here all throughout church history. Jesus is talking about two clearly different events that are separated by centuries. So, so there's a lot of debate over which portions of the text apply to the events of the first century and then which ones apply to Jesus's return. And so because this is, you're, you're, you're in for a treat today because this is one of the hardest and most difficult and controversial passages in the Bible. So let's ask the magic eight ball. Will this be a longer message today? Signs are pointing to yes right now. Okay. So hold on, engage, get out our app and let's, let's dive in. Before we get to Luke chapter 21, here's what we got to know. Just right up front. Number one, Jesus knows the future. This is called the foreknowledge of God. That Jesus knows. He's going to predict the future. So clearly that means Jesus knows 
the future. This is called the foreknowledge of God. Secondly, here's the second thing you need to know. Clearly, today, we're going to see Jesus tells the future. So God has foreknowledge of the future, number one, but then he reveals the future, and we call that prophecy. But then third and finally, Jesus orchestrates the future. This is called the sovereignty of God. Jesus knows the future, Jesus tells the future, and Jesus orchestrates the future because he is sovereign. And so Jesus is over time, he sees all of time, he works in time, he knows the future, and he reveals the future. And so in light of that, let's dive in. I'm going to do my best to break this passage down to make it as easy to understand as possible. And so number one, here's what we're going to see. Jesus, first of all, is going to predict the end of an old age, the end of the old age. And that's going to take place in AD 70, the end of the old age. Look with me in verse five. Some of his disciples began talking about the majestic stonework of the temple and the memorial decorations on the walls. But Jesus said, verse six, the time is coming when all of these things will be completely demolished. Not one stone will be left on top of another. Teacher, they asked, when will all this happen? What sign will show us these things are about to take place? Now, this is the second temple. The first temple was destroyed in about 600 BC with Babylon and and Nebuchadnezzar. We studied that when we looked at the book of Daniel, verse by verse. The first temple was destroyed. The second temple has been rebuilt, and it's still being rebuilt to a certain degree. It is ornate. It is beautiful because it has gold and jewels on it. It was literally shining. This was the second temple temple. It was the pride of the nation of Israel. It was the the pride of the Jewish people. The temple was an icon to them. So so much more than the White House to Americans or or, or Buckingham Palace to Great Britain, right? It, It is so much more than that. It represented the presence of God, the blessing of God, the favor of God upon his people. And so Jesus is here saying that this place of worship, and it's also become, we've seen already, a place of business is going to be completely and utterly destroyed. And so obviously this is concerning to the people for lots of different reasons that the temple is going to be destroyed. And so their question is, how do we know this is going to happen? Like, when is this going to happen and what signs are going to show us that this is going to happen. Verse eight, he replied, don't let anyone mislead you for many will come in my name, claiming that I am the Messiah and saying the time has come, but don't believe them. Jesus says false teachers are going to arise that will mislead you. And so he says, don't go after them. Don't go after them. Don't, don't follow them. Don't believe them. And so because Jesus is telling us that there are false teachers, that there are, are false prophets, that that means that there is right doctrine and wrong doctrine. And the only way for us to know the wrong doctrine and the false teacher and the false prophet is if we know the word of God. And we can discern what is right and wrong, not based upon our own opinions, but through the scripture, through the word 
of God. So this requires knowledge of the word and it requires discernment where we test teachers, prophets, people who claim they speak for God. We must test them and discern them. So, so here's what I want you to notice is that Jesus warns against easily trusting teachers, prophets, and especially those that claim to be apostles. In fact, we, we see a bent here towards being skeptical of them rather than being immediately trusting, right? There's a, there's a bent here, there's a leaning here that we're to test and discern. Jesus warns against easily trusting and not being skeptical of teachers, prophets, apostles. He tells us to discern, to don't, not, just don't go after them. We've got to test them and see. Verse 9. And when you hear of wars and insurrections, don't panic. Yes, these things must take place first, but the end won't follow immediately. Do you, do you hear Jesus saying like, hey, some things are going to happen, but the end is going to be delayed. It's not going to happen immediately. Verse 10. Then he added, nation will go to war against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes and there will be famines and plagues in many lands and there will be terrifying things and great miraculous signs from heaven. So again, we've got to have our bifocals, right? Some of this is talking about what's going to happen in Jesus' day in the first century, and some is talking about what's going to happen later. We'll dive into that in just a little bit, but here's what Jesus is saying. Wars are going to come, don't worry. Wars are going to come, don't worry. Natural disasters and catastrophes are going to occur, don't worry. And the end won't come immediately just because you begin to see these things. They will be precursors, but just because we begin to see wars and famine and catastrophe doesn't mean the end is immediate. Verse 12, but before all of this occurs, there will be a time of great persecution. You will be dragged into synagogues and prisons, and you will stand trial before kings and governors because you are my followers. But this will be your opportunity to tell them about me. So don't worry in advance about how to answer the charges against you, for I will give you the right words and such wisdom that none of your opponents will be able to reply or refute you. Even those closest to you, your parents, your brothers, relatives, and friends will betray you. They will even kill some of you, and everyone will hate you because you are my followers. But not a hair of your head will perish. By standing firm, you will win your souls. So Jesus has said, wars are coming, natural disasters, catastrophes are coming, persecution is coming. Don't worry, don't fear. Now, it seems strange that Jesus said that not a hair on their head would perish because obviously these believers and the disciples themselves suffered unbelievable physical pain and death in the first century because of their faith in Jesus. In fact, in verse 16, Jesus even predicts that some of the disciples will be put to death. So Jesus's point here is that their eternal reward is not jeopardized by these things. Nothing could happen to them that was outside the sovereign protection of God. And so ultimately, although the hair on their head was hurt for a moment, they were not destroyed because Christ had promised the final triumph of his kingdom, even over death, and with it, the resurrection 
of their bodies. So Jesus is saying, things are going to be hard before my return. There's going to be wars. There's going to be persecutions. There's going to be catastrophe. Here's what Jesus is saying, that suffering goes hand in hand with the preaching of the gospel and the advancement of the kingdom of God. Like in spite of suffering, the gospel will go forward. In spite of suffering, the kingdom of God will advance. And so Jesus is saying, stand firm. Whatever the cost, whatever the catastrophe, whatever the suffering, whatever the trial, stand firm because the gospel will be preached. Disciples will be made. The kingdom of God will advance in spite of severe opposition and persecution. So suffering goes hand in hand with the preaching of the gospel. Now, here's what I want you to notice about false teachers real quick. Oftentimes, false teachers, false prophets will give false hope. They'll give false hope. They'll promise false comfort, false promises, false assurance, false encouragement. Where so far in what we've been reading is our hope found? Is it in our circumstances? <laughs> no. Is it in our comfort? No. Is it in our possessions? No. None of these things have been promised to us. In fact, to Jesus' followers in that day and to us still to this day, none of these things are promised or a guarantee or a given. It's actually the opposite. Jesus has promised his followers very difficult roads ahead. And so our, our hope, our encouragement is in Christ alone. It's not in our conditions or our comfort or in suffering or in the lack of suffering. Our hope is in Christ alone. And so you'll find false teachers, false prophets, always promising a set of conditions rather than pointing to Christ alone for your hope and your joy and your peace. Let's keep going. Verse 20. And when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then you will know that the time of its destruction has arrived. Then those in Judea must flee to the hills. Those in Jerusalem must get out. And those out in the country should not return to the city. Jesus is saying an army is going to siege, lay siege, surround Jerusalem, lay siege to Jerusalem. And this happened by Rome in 70 AD. They starved the people to death. Josephus, the Jewish historian, said approximately 1 million Jews died in this siege. It was awful. Inside the walls, people were starving. They were dehydrated. Some resulted to cannibalism. The conditions, when you read, I, I can't even read out loud with, with kids in the room. They were horrendous. And nearly one million Jews died in this siege. And then the city was leveled to the ground. The temple, as Jesus said, had not one stone left on top of it. In AD 70, temple worship or corporate Judaism ended and has never returned. And currently, 
the area, as some of our people who just returned from Jerusalem will testify to, is controlled, guarded by Muslim soldiers. The temple is not there. It was laid waste and has never returned. And the new covenant will teach us that the purpose of the place, the temple, was to prepare us for a person. And his name was Jesus. That was the purpose of the place. It was to prepare us for a person. Now the person has come and the place is not needed. In fact, Paul would say in Colossians that, that everything about the old covenant was just the shadow of the reality and the reality is a person and his name is Jesus. And so the, the place prepared us for a person. Now the person has come. We don't need the place. It was just all shadows of a reality. And so God has not only ensured that the old covenant was fulfilled in Christ, he has ensured that it would not continue. Because there's a new covenant in place through his son, Jesus Christ alone. And so Christianity is not anti-Judaism. No, make no mistake. Christianity is the fulfillment of Orthodox Judaism. It is the fulfillment of Orthodox Judaism. The place prepared us for a person. The old covenant, Paul would say, was a tutor to lead us to Christ, to a person. And so here's what's interesting here. Jesus' warnings and instructions to get out of the city, to flee the city in this siege, they run counter to every established practice in the ancient world. He tells them that when they see Jerusalem being surrounded by armies, to flee the city. This instruction is completely opposite to the normal practice in the ancient world. Whenever armies began to invade a country, the people who lived in the desert or the countryside would always make their way to the strongest fortress or walled city in order to seek refuge from the ravages of war. But Jesus warns his followers, don't go into the city. Instead, flee to the mountains. And this is precisely what many Christians did when Rome showed up. They listened to Jesus and they fled the city. They recalled the teachings of Jesus. And when the Roman armies marched towards Jerusalem, instead of seeking refuge in the city, Christians by large numbers fled across the Jordan to the east and were spared from destruction. And this truth remains true to this day. Christians listen to the word of God and they live. People who ignore the word of God die. This truth remains true to this very day. And so the call of God is to choose life and live. Listen to me. Remember Jesus in Matthew 7, put my words into practice and you will build your house on solid rock. If you ignore me and you ignore my teachings and you don't put them into practice, you're foolish. You're building your house on sand. The Christians who listened to Jesus were spared. They lived. Verse 22, for those will be the days of God's vengeance. I want to remind you that Jesus is speaking here. And Jesus says, these will be days of God's vengeance. And the prophetic words of the scriptures will be fulfilled. How terrible it will be for pregnant women and nursing mothers in those days. They were dehydrated and they could not 
feed their babies. They couldn't nurse them. For there will be disaster in the land and great anger against this people. I want you to notice some words here that Jesus uses. He says, these days, specifically, at least first of all, AD 70, with the destruction of Jerusalem, these days are days of God's vengeance. This is the wrath of God. Now, we can't always point to suffering and say that's the wrath of God upon a person or upon a people. But we also, listen to me, we also can't say it's not. Here, we have direct words from Jesus, God in the flesh, saying this suffering inflicted upon Jerusalem and its people is God's vengeance. It's his wrath. We can't always say that. We don't know. But here, Jesus says, this is God's vengeance. This is a day of God's wrath. Yes, God is patient, wanting none to perish and all to come to repentance. But the same is true for us. A day of wrath is coming where God's anger will be poured out on sin and wickedness because our God is also holy and just. He hates sin and he must punish sin, wickedness, and rebellion. This is a day of God's vengeance. And listen to me. There's another day of God's vengeance coming. And while for some of us, we look forward to those days because it is our salvation, it is our redemption. We're going to see that here in just a little bit. Make no mistake, these days for people who've rebelled against God, who've rejected God's one and only son, Jesus, they will be days of vengeance. They will be days of wrath. And Jesus is going to say here in a little bit, they will be horrific days. I've said it before. I'll say it again. Jesus is either going to be your savior, your redeemer, or your worst nightmare. So first of all, Jesus predicts the end of an old age the end of the old covenant because it's been fulfilled. And that covenant will not only be fulfilled, God will end it and ensure that its practice is no longer in use. But then secondly, Jesus predicts the beginning of a new age. That's AD 33, AD 70, Jesus until today, a new age. Look with me in verse 24. They will be killed by the sword. He's speaking again of the the Jews of Jerusalem. They will be killed by the sword, sent away as captives to all the nations of the world, and Jerusalem will be trampled down by the Gentiles until the period of the Gentiles. Underline that circle. That's the new age. The period of the Gentiles comes to an end. So there's a lot of speculation here about Jesus' words in verse 24. These times of the Gentiles and them being fulfilled. So here's what we got to understand. Abraham has physical descendants. He's the father Abraham, right, of the nation of Israel. But Abraham, we're going to learn in Galatians and in the New Covenant, has spiritual descendants as well. That by faith in Jesus, the Jewish Messiah, Gentiles enter into the family of God. So Abraham has physical descendants. He has spiritual descendants. And there are Gentile Christians who will become spiritual descendants 
of Abraham. They'll join the family by faith in Jesus Christ. And so this time of the Gentiles is the new covenant church. It's the church age. And we see its birth in the book of Acts. If you remember from our study of Luke, Jesus has promised that he's going to take the vineyard away. He's going to take the kingdom away from his chosen people, Israel. And he says, I'm going to give it to others. You remember that? We're going to give the vineyard to others. That's us. This is the time of the Gentiles. This is the church age, which started in the first century, and it goes all the way till now. And it's going to keep going for a little bit longer at least. So the word in verse 24 that's translated until, it suggests a ending point. That once the moment in redemptive history comes, when the days of the Gentiles are fulfilled, then we expect a great work of God to bring the Jewish people into his kingdom. And so we believe that Jesus is promising here that God is not finished with Abraham's physical descendants, the nation of Israel. He's not done with them. The Jews will remain scattered, as they were in the first century all over the earth, and they will remain scattered until the time of the Gentiles is over. And the prophets in the Old Testament predicted that God would gather Israel back to himself in Jerusalem from all of the nations before the coming of the kingdom of God in its fullness when Jesus returns. And now watch this. Since the first century, the Jewish people, as Jesus predicted, would be scattered all over the face of the earth. It gives me chills to say this. And in 1948, just as the prophets predicted, in a day, Israel became a nation again. The prophets predicted that. They said, how could a nation be born in a day? And yet that's what God will do. There, there are more Jews right now living in Jerusalem than at any other point in history since the first century. They have been migrating back to Jerusalem since 1948. And so we're beginning to see what Jesus said, what the prophets said. They would be scattered until the time of the Gentiles is fulfilled, until this church age is done. And we're seeing that. 1948, Israel became a nation. And since then, Jews from all over the earth are being regathered back to Jerusalem. It's, it's happening right in front of our eyes. Paul said in Romans 11 that after the gospel is spread to the Gentiles, that God will once more deal with ethnic Israel, with Abraham's physical descendants. And so Paul seems to suggest too in Romans chapter 11 that there will come a time when another chapter will be written for the Jews after, as Jesus said, the time of the Gentiles are fulfilled. So Jesus predicts the beginning of a new age, first century to now, the time of the Gentiles, the church age. That's where we find ourselves and then third, Jesus is predicting the age to come, and that's to be determined. We don't know. Let's read. Verse 25. 
And there will be strange signs in the sun, moon, and stars. And here on earth, the nations will be in turmoil, perplexed by the roaring seas and strange tides. People will be terrified at what they see coming upon the earth. For the powers in the heavens will be shaken. Then everyone will see the Son of Man coming on a cloud with power and great glory. So when all these things begin to happen, stand up and look, for your salvation is near. Jesus quotes from Daniel chapter 7 here. If you were with us when we studied Daniel, you might remember that Daniel prophesied after a tribulational period where the Antichrist wages war against the people of God, he sees one, like he said, a son of man coming down from the clouds to rescue his people and to put the Antichrist, the revelation beast, to death, to punish him and to judge him. And Jesus says here, there's going to be terrible things happening. People are going to be terrified. And I will return. And he says, the son of man will return from the clouds. Here's what he's saying. Daniel chapter seven, that's me. That's me. I'm the fulfillment of the visions that Daniel saw. That's me. I'm the son of man that's going to return on the clouds. And did you see in verse 27, just very plainly, if you just plainly read this to me, verse 27, it says, after all of these things, when will the son of man come? But before all these horrible, terrible things, that's not what Jesus is leading me to think here. Now, people have interpreted this differently, but verse 27 says, then everyone will see the son of man coming on the clouds. I believe that Jesus comes after all of these terrible things that we will see happen in the tribulation. Jesus says, your, look up, your salvation is near. Who is that? Well, well, Jesus knows it's not his disciples in the first century because he didn't return them. He's talking about his disciples, or he's talking to specifically here, his disciples that are going to be the foundation and the leaders in the church that's going to be built in the birth of the church that we see in Acts. These disciples represent the nation, or the, the church rather, not the nation of Israel to me. Some interpret this to say that Jesus is speaking of his chosen people, Israel, I believe he's speaking to his disciples, which are going to represent the foundation, the pillars of the New Testament, the New Covenant church. And so I believe Jesus is talking about disciples of Jesus will experience these things and then they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds. Now, some people will say, well, Clayton, that's not very encouraging. And I totally get that. <laughs> Suffering, death, the temple being torn down, that wasn't encouraging to Jesus' followers in the first century either. Listen, something being encouraging or not is not a reason to believe something. There's plenty of things that we read in the scripture that aren't necessarily encouraging, but they're true. So we don't believe things on whether or not they feel encouraging to us in the moment. And what we'll see in the first century is that the church will explode in spite of suffering and catastrophe. The church will explode in spite of all of this. New Testament scholar Daryl Bach said this, the church is not called to enforce dominion on those around it. Rather, we as a community will suffer as Christ did until he returns. To forget we bear a cross and not a sword in this era is to abandon a basic aspect of our calling, to proclaim, reflect, and serve Jesus. 
Only in the end will we be rescued from pain and rejection. Theologies that promote the triumph of the church outside the return of Jesus forget where the source of our vindication resides. Remember what we said, our hope is in Jesus and his return, not in a level of comfort or in a lack of suffering. Bach says, he is the one who brings the victory, not we. Those who are not prepared to stand as witnesses before the world, which does not understand him, do not understand the call God gives to his church. Stand firm, regardless of the cost. So our salvation, our encouragement is that Jesus is returning, not in a level of comfort or lack of of suffering. And so unlike believers in these days who will be in turmoil, Jesus says, seeing these horrific things play out, they will be in turmoil. Jesus is telling his disciples, you don't need to fear these catastrophes, this persecution, these heavenly signs. They signal that your brother, sister, your redemption is near. Wayne Grudem said in his systematic theology, so the signs are given to keep Christians from being surprised by these remarkable events, to assure them that God knows them all in advance and to keep them from following after alleged messiahs who do not come, watch this, in the dramatic, visible, world-conquering way in which Jesus himself will come. Our Savior, we've said this before over and over and over again in our study of Daniel and in our study of Luke, our Savior Jesus will return from the clouds. He will come down from heaven visibly, suddenly, and dramatically. False messiahs who claim to be Christ will rise up from the earth and claim to be something they're not. Our Messiah, when he returns, you will know it. You won't have to wonder. You won't have to guess. It will be a visible, Gurdam says, world-conquering, dramatic way when he will come down from the clouds. Verse 21, Jesus says, then he gave him this illustration. Notice the fig tree or any other tree. When the leaves come out, you know without being told that summer is near. In the same way, when you see all these things taking place, you can know that the kingdom of God is near. I tell you the truth. Verse 32, I tell you the truth. This generation will not pass from the scene until all these things have taken place. Now, that sounds a little confusing, doesn't it? Because he's talking to his disciples. This is first century. And he says this, this generation will not pass until all of these things that we've been talking about have taken place. So, so what does this mean? What does this generation mean? What does it mean that this generation is going to see all these things taking place. Well, several interpretations have been offered for these difficult words. Uh, number one, some think this generation refers to the disciples who were alive when Jesus was speaking. And so all of these things refers to the beginning, but not necessarily the completion of the sufferings that we've been talking about, specifically the destruction of Jerusalem. Number two, Others see that in all of these things, a prediction with multiple fulfillments so that Jesus' disciples will be both this generation that sees the destruction of the temple in AD 70 and also those at the end of the age who see the events surrounding the abomination that causes desolation that we read about in Daniel 9, 11, 12, Matthew 24. Third, 
since the generation of can refer to people either like a qualitative term, like the generation of believers throughout the entire age, or the evil generation. It's a qualitative term that will remain until Christ returns until he establishes his kingdom. So maybe it's talking about it qualitatively that there's a generation of believers or generation of evil, wicked people who will exist in this entire age that will see all of these things taking place. And then finally, others understand this generation to mean the generation that sees all of these things, like the generation alive when the final period of the great tribulation begins, the single generation that sees all of the end time events fulfilled. Now you might say, well, Clayton, what do you think? Um, I think it's all of them. And I know that's probably confusing, but I, and you're going to see here in just a second, I, I think it's all of the above. Bifocals, remember, near and far. A typological pattern, a series of events that happens 600 BC, 70 AD, and in the end to come. Not everybody agrees with me there. I get that. But this is how I interpret these things. So here's what I mean by that. The predicted destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70 is used by Jesus as a pattern or a type. It's a typological example that points to an ultimate destruction that will come at the end of the age when Christ returns. So we're seeing it as both near and soon, but also far and later. The first fulfillment of this destruction was in AD 70. But this foreshadows a greater judgment at the end of the age so that some of what Jesus predicted in verse 5 through 24, these wars, catastrophes, persecution, also find fulfillment in the events that precede Christ's second coming that we read about in Revelation 6 through 18. The bulls, the seals, the trumpets, the, the, the riders. This is the seven-year tribulation. And so here's another example of a typological example. In 1 John chapter 2, John says this, Dear children, the last hour is here. And watch what he says. You have heard that the Antichrist is coming, capital A. This is the beast in Revelation. You've heard that the Antichrist is coming. And watch what he says. And already many such Antichrists have already appeared. Who's he talking about? There's a lot of people. Uh, primarily Nebuchadnezzar with Babylon. We're going to see it again with Rome, Nero, when they sacked Jerusalem in AD 70. And then these lowercase a antichrists are going to end up resulting in a final ultimate cataclysmic antichrist at the end of the age, capital A antichrist. And so this is a pattern. This is a, a type that we see repeated over and over again. These antichrists that come and oppose God, oppose his word, destroy and persecute the people of God and set themselves up as a God to be worshiped. We've seen this all throughout history. Second Thessalonians two chapter three or verse three and four, Paul says this about the antichrist here. He calls him the man of lawlessness for that day when Jesus returns will not come until there is a great rebellion against God and the man of lawlessness, that's the Antichrist, capital A Antichrist, is revealed. The one who brings destruction, he, watch this, will exalt himself and defy everything that people call God and every object of worship. And then watch what Paul says about the capital A Antichrist. He will sit 
in the temple of God, claiming that he himself is God. This happened with Nebuchadnezzar. It happened again in AD 70 with Nero. And Paul says it's going to happen all over again. But here's what's interesting. There's no temple right now. And Paul says, Antichrist, the man of lawlessness, is going to sit in the temple of God. So what does that mean? People debate this highly. Okay? But what I believe is that there will be a third temple built. And we're going to see this type, we're going to see this pattern happen all over again. And the seven-year tribulation is going to begin with the rebuilding of a third temple. And halfway through, as Daniel prophesied, the Antichrist who helped Jerusalem begin the building of this temple, halfway through, the Antichrist is going to turn on Jerusalem because he's deceived them. The temple will be destroyed. He will proclaim himself to be God. The people of God will be persecuted. We'll see the worst of the tribulation. And then Jesus will return. So the pattern repeats before Jesus returns. Temple, Antichrist, persecution, catastrophe. It happened in 600 BC with Babylon, 70 AD with Rome, and I believe it's going to happen all over again before Jesus returns. New Testament scholars Daryl Bach, D.A. Carson said this, this passage that we've just read addresses the entire period from the time Jesus spoke until the time he returns. Now, they're not going to agree with me on every single point that we've talked about, but here's what they're saying. You've got to have bifocals. Some of this is about first century. Some of this is about the age that is to come. Now, I know this is a lot, so I got a nifty chart to show you, all right? A nifty timeline. It's in the app as well. You can save it and you can zoom in on it and see it better with what I'm talking about. But at the beginning, you've got 600 BC, the exile. The captives of Judah are taken to exile by Babylon. You've got the rebuilding of the temple. And then we're gonna zoom in 32, 33 AD on the anointed one is killed. We've got the church age. Jesus has called this the time of the Gentiles. You've got 70 AD, the temple is destroyed. You've got big black T, stands for tribulation, which begins with the rebuilding of the temple. This is the 70th seven in Daniel, the last seven years. We'll have the abomination that causes desolation. This is the, the, the Antichrist in the temple proclaiming himself to be God. You've got the persecution of Christians. You've got mass conversion of Jewish people. You've got Jesus coming down from the clouds. He's the supernatural rock of Daniel 2. This is the son of man returning on the clouds in Daniel 7, Matthew 24, Luke chapter 21. You've got believers being raptured up to Jesus in the air. This is the catching up in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. And you have the millennium. All that's in your app. You can download it. You can save it so that you can have it for later and argue with me and disagree with me all you want. Because while we will not have uniformity here, we expect unity on one of the hardest things to understand and interpret in all of the scripture. And so finally, number four, Jesus instructs every age. Verse 33, heaven and earth will disappear. But my words, Jesus said, will never disappear. Jesus is saying his people will always have his words. How is that possible? 
What, what does that mean? Everything in this world is going to come and go. Everything in this world is going to change except one thing. Jesus says, that's my words. You will always have my words. How is that possible? Well, Jesus would give his apostles authority to write the words of the scripture through the power of the Holy Spirit. These men would write through the power of the Holy Spirit. God would protect the copying of scripture and the choosing of the canon of scripture and make sure that we have it to this day. Jesus said, you will always have my words. My words will never pass away. And he has ensured that by giving us his word in the scriptures. Verse 34, watch out. Don't let your hearts be dulled by carousing and drunkenness and by the worries of this life. Don't let that day catch you unaware like a trap for that day will come upon everyone living on the earth. So keep alert at all times and pray that you might be strong enough to escape these coming horrors and stand before the son of man. Jesus says, no matter the age you find yourself in, wake up, wake up, stay alert, pray, persevere so that you might live a life that makes sense in light of Jesus's return so that you might remain faithful in spite of catastrophe, in spite of suffering, in spite of persecution, wake up, pray and persevere. Verse 37, every day Jesus went to the temple to teach and each evening he returned to spend the night on the Mount of Olives and the crowds gathered at the temple early each morning to hear him. I love this. Because you know, like some of you right now, you have no idea what Jesus is talking about. <laughs> right? You're, you're reading all this. You're, you're hearing me talk about all these things. And you're like, this is so much. I'm not sure I understand all this. I'm not sure I get all this. Me too. Yesterday I was studying for hours after a week of studying. And Darby's like, are you not ready for tomorrow? I said, no, I'm ready. But you can't ever be ready and totally grasp everything that we're talking about here. Right? So, so I get it. Some of these things have gone over your head. Listen, it went over their head. They didn't understand it. And we even see that in the New Testament. They think Jesus is coming tonight. They think he's coming tomorrow. And that's a healthy belief. But at the same time, Paul says, no, you can still marry and you still need to go to work. Right? They, they didn't totally get it, but here's what they did. Look at that last line in verse 38. But they gathered at the temple early each morning to hear him. They didn't totally get everything. They didn't have it all lined out in some fancy chart. But what did they do? They kept coming after Jesus. I got to keep hearing from him. I got to get to know him. I got to spend time with him. I got to listen to what Jesus says. Here's the big idea today. I don't know the future, but I know the one who knows the future. They didn't know the future. They just heard it all from Jesus and they still don't fully get it. They still don't fully grasp it, but they just keep coming to Jesus. And there's where our hope is. Not in figuring all of this out because after everything I've told you and all the different things I believe, I don't have it all figured out. None of you do. I don't know the future, but I know the one who knows the future. We are not the planning committee. We're the welcoming committee. That's the people of God. Welcoming, looking forward to the return of Christ. Wayne Grudem said this, with each successive wave of events, 
We do not know which one will be the last. And this is good because God does not intend us to know. He simply wants us to continue to long for Christ's return and to expect that it could occur at any time. It's spiritually unhealthy for us to say that we know all of these signs have not occurred. And it seems to stretch the bounds of credible interpretation to say that we know all of these signs have occurred. But it seems to fit exactly in the middle of the New Testament approach towards Christ to turn to say that we do not know with certainty if these events have occurred. Responsible exegesis, an expectation of Christ's sudden return, and a measure of humility in our understanding are all three preserved in this position. Then, if Christ does return suddenly, we will not be tempted to eject, saying that one or another sign has not yet occurred. We will simply be ready to welcome him when he appears. And if there's great suffering yet to come, and if we begin to see intense opposition to the gospel, a large revival among the Jewish people, remarkable progress in the preaching of the gospel throughout the world, and even spectacular signs in the heavens, then we will not be dismayed or lose heart because we will remember Jesus's words. When these things begin to take place, look up, raise your heads, because your redemption is drawing near. The greeting among God's people for centuries, thousands of years, had always been shalom. It's a Hebrew word that meant the peace of God. But in the first century, after the resurrection of Christ, a new term replaced this common Jewish greeting among the people of God. And it became the common greeting among oppressed Believers, and we find it in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 22. And here's the word, Maranatha. This word replaced the common Jewish greeting for hundreds and hundreds of years. Shalom, Maranatha. It means our Lord come. This is the cry of the New Testament church. Come, Lord Jesus. I don't know it all. I don't want it all figured out. If I'm wrong and a preacher person ends up being right, I'm gonna praise God that I was wrong <laughs> and not have to go through the tribulation. I will praise God. I just want him to come. Maranatha, our Lord come. I wanna close with taking us back to verse 13 because in all of the craziness and the horrific things and the sufferings and the catastrophes, Jesus says something interesting in verse 13. He says this, this will be your opportunity. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? That in all of these horrific things that, that are gonna happen, all of this destruction and war and famine and catastrophe and persecution, Jesus says, this will be your opportunity. And so no matter what age we find ourselves in, no matter how it all pans out in the end, this is our day of opportunity. This is our, 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 our time to, to to preach the gospel, to make disciples all, of all nations. This is the opportunity of 
a lifetime. And so while we're not going to overplay like our role in our importance in the kingdom of God in this age right now in this time by like selling everything we have and being destitute and not worrying about tomorrow, right? We're, we're, we're not doing that. At the same time, we can't underplay or undervalue our opportunity in our time, our role, our assignment, our vision at our church is living as and longing for the city of God. We live as the city while we wait for the new city. We, we, we wait for the new city by living as the city right now today. We've got bifocals. We're looking near and far. We're living for the opportunity, the moment today and tomorrow. We're living for this generation and future generations, should the Lord tarry. We've got an urgency to tell everyone the great news of the gospel. We've got an expectancy that he could return at any moment. And at the exact same time, we're living for a legacy, future generations of disciples of Jesus. This is what fidelity looks like. Faithfulness looks like. Urgency for today and legacy for tomorrow. Maranatha, our Lord come. Would you pray with me? Just right now, heads bowed, eyes closed. Just, I know today's been a lot, but for every single one of you, this day will be the greatest day you've ever known. It will be the day of your redemption, the day of your salvation that you've been hoping for, or it will be your greatest nightmare. And I don't want that for anybody in this room. And so some of you are here today and you've never given your life to Jesus. You've rebelled against God. You've rejected God's one and only son as the only way of salvation. And today I wanna challenge you to abandon all hope in your works, to abandon all hope in yourself, to abandon all hope in ever being good enough to be right with God and to run to Jesus. He died for you on that cross, paying your fine for sin. He rose from the grave, proving that he is God and conquering your sin and death. Run to Jesus today. Give your life to Jesus today. And the Bible says your sin will be forgiven. You'll be made right with God. And you can know for sure that when you die, you're going to heaven. Or if you're alive when Jesus returns, that that day will be the day of your salvation, the day of your redemption. And so if you're here and you've never given your life to Jesus today, abandon all hope in yourself and give your life to Jesus. If that's you, grab that connection card and the seat back in front of you, fill it out and take it to our welcome center after the service is over here in just a little bit. God, we pray that by your spirit, you would give your people here at this church, God, an urgency about this day and expectancy about this day and at the exact same time, living for a legacy so that future generations are ready for this day. Help us to stand firm. Help us to persevere. Help us to be a remnant. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Would you stand as we worship?